0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hey, church. All right, let's read God's word together. Exodus chapter 25. Yahweh the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a moulding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, And make a moulding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a moulding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work "...its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand and and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it The whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain.
1: Uh, thanks very much, Ben, for doing that reading. Uh, I bet you're thankful that I didn't get in to read the other two chapters as well. It was a, a pretty long one. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon uh, on the online welcome card, if you find that uh, helpful to follow along with. Uh, aside from that, let's let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this, your word. and. Uh, uh, we do ask that through it, by the power of your Spirit, uh, that you might open our eyes for the first time, or, or perhaps afresh, uh, to your great desire to dwell with us, and the great works that you have done to make it possible for you to live with us. Uh, in Christ's name we pray, Amen. Well, uh, in the early years of our married life, in what you might call the, the kind of pre-kids era, uh, Gabby and I had a bunch of different people share house with us. Uh, and before they would move in with us, we'd always ask ourselves, uh, do you think it would be actually possible for us to live with them, for us to live together? Uh, we'd typically have a conversation with them, we'd sit down and we'd first ask them uh, a bunch of questions about who they were trying to get a sense of their personality, their uh, personal, their kind of habits, their interests. Uh, Are we really going to fit together? And then we talk about uh, what was going to make it possible for us to live together. Are we on the same page as far as paying board and division of household tasks and generally clarifying expectations? And after having this sort of uh, fairly frank conversation, uh, we'd come to an answer to that question, is it actually going to work for us to live together? And in many ways that's the key question of the rest of the book of Exodus, in particular today's passage. Is it actually going to work for a glorious and holy God to live with His sinful and rebellious people? God certainly desires to dwell with His people, to to live amongst the dwellings of His people. And so what we see in today's passage is that He designs His dwelling place uh, to remind His people constantly of who He is and what's made it possible for Him to dwell amongst them. So, that's my kind of big summary of today's passage. Uh, God desires to dwell amongst the dwellings of His people, so He designs His dwelling place and all its furnishings to remind them of who He is, who it is that's dwelling among them, And what's made it possible for Him to dwell among them? So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to kind of take a whirlwind tour of this whole section of the book of Exodus. Uh, First, uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 to 9 in chapter 25, uh, where we see that God desires to dwell amongst the dwellings of His people. Uh, First, uh, take a look at verses 8 and 9. You'll see three words that describe God's dwelling. Uh, The first word there in verse 9 is the word tent. Tent. Take a look in verse 9, God says, uh, make this tabernacle or or literally just make this tent. And I think tent's a bit more helpful because, well, at least each of us have a concept of what a tent is, but maybe you don't really know what a tabernacle is. uh, The word tent tells us a, a fair bit about the nature of God's house, His dwelling place. First, it tells us that God's dwelling is supposed to be portable. That's what a tent's like. You can pitch it wherever you like, or maybe not wherever you like, but you, know, you can pitch it in lots of different places. Right? God wants to dwell with His people, not just at the fixed point of Mount Sinai, but wherever His people might go on their way to the Promised Land. So He needs a portable house. Second, the fact that it's a tent tells us that it's temporary. Well, once Israel enters the Promised Land and they're established in the Promised Land, a much more permanent house for God will need to be built. That's God's temple in Jerusalem. So it's portable, it's temporary. A third, the fact that it's a tent tells us a a fair bit about what our God is like. It tells us about His desire to really enter into and experience the lives that His people are experiencing. Uh, to identify with his people, to not be a distant or detached or, or kind, of, uh, kind of God who, who keeps his people at arm's length. Right? God sees that his, his people are living in tents uh, and so he wants to live in a tent just like them. But right? He wants to identify with his people. Right, so, God's dwelling is a tent. That's the first word. Second, God's dwelling is a dwelling place. Right? He says there, then, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Right? This isn't so much about the nature of God's dwelling, it's about its purpose, right? It's a place for God to live amongst his people. You might say, but surely God is everywhere. Maybe you've heard that word God is omnipresent, he's present everywhere. Right, but this tent is where God is going to be present with his people in a special and significant way. Yes, God dwells everywhere, God is everywhere in one sense, but this is his personal home. It's his home address, if, as you were, his place of residence. Right, so there's, it's a tent, it's a dwelling place, and third, uh, it's a sanctuary. Have them make a sanctuary for me. This isn't really about the nature of the tent itself, but uh, about who's living in the tent. The tent is occupied by the God who is glorious in holiness. Uh, So, therefore, the tent itself is sanctified, it's set apart, it's holy, it's a sanctuary. Uh, This is a big theme in the book of Exodus, the idea of God's holiness Maybe you remember in Exodus 3, verse 5, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, what did God say to him? He said, do not come any further. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's not that it was a particularly holy patch of dirt, right? Uh, The ground was holy because the God who is holy was present there. And as you can imagine, when God appears to you in a burning bush, uh, that had quite an impression, on, uh, made quite an impact on Moses. Uh, so when he's singing a song in Exodus chapter 15, after God has rescued his people from Egypt, he says in Exodus 15 verse 11, "...who among uh, the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, who is majestic in holiness?" This tent is a sanctuary because it's been set apart as the dwelling place of the God who is majestic in holiness. That's what makes it a sanctuary, makes it sanctified, makes it holy. Three words about God's dwelling. It's a tent, uh, it's a dwelling place, it's a sanctuary. That's important to remember as we look at the rest. Uh, And then three requirements for the building of God's dwelling place. The, The first is they've got to get the materials from somewhere. You see all the materials listed there in verses 3 to 7. There's, there's wood, there's different fabrics, there's ingredients for oil and incense, there's different types of metals, uh, there's gemstones to go on various uh, of the kind of priestly garments in particular, like all, a whole lot of different materials to build this tent, this dwelling place for God. Uh, and the reality is, the only one of them that they can get from the area around Mount Sinai is acacia wood. Acacia would all the time through this section, because there are all these acacia forests around, uh, around Mount Sinai. Where are the rest of the materials going to come from? Well, either from the personal possessions of the Israelites or from the possessions that they'd plundered from the Egyptians. I Do you remember in Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36? You can look that up later on. But the Israelites walked out of Egypt with all sorts of materials. So there's this massive need for materials. And Moses here is to take up an offering from the people to provide those materials. But if you look in verse 2, you'll see that, that God doesn't want the people to be forced to give to this cause. But their offering must be voluntary and willing. He says to Moses, God does. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. As we read in the New Testament, God loves a cheerful giver, a willing giver. And that's the case here too. There's a need for building materials, a need for those materials to be given willingly. Two requirements. third requirement is that the whole thing has to be constructed in accordance with God's design plans. That's a repeated refrain in this section. In verse 9, God says, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Moses is up in the mountain, remember, it. in the cloud of God's glory. God's going to show him how to make the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. You might say, why is God so prescriptive? Surely he could just give Moses a rough idea of the concept and then kind of set him free with his creative flair. Right, why be so prescriptive about it? Uh, well, first, uh, because God knows that it's a, a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty shaky sharehouse arrangement uh, for a glorious and holy God to dwell amongst a sinful and rebellious people. Right? That, that's an arrangement that could go horribly wrong unless Moses follows his plans exactly. That's the first reason. The second reason is that God wants His dwelling place, every part of it, all its furnishings, to constantly remind His people of who He is and what has made it possible for Him to dwell amongst them. Uh, So the the tabernacle and all its furnishings are like a giant picture book that the Israelites kind of lived among every day of their lives uh, to teach them core truths about who their God was and how it was that He was able to live with them. God desires to dwell amongst His people. Uh, We might sometimes talk uh, perhaps uh, about coming to church to be with God. Uh, maybe not so much these days, but when I was growing up, uh, a little bit longer, I, I used to hear people say that they, were coming, they loved coming into the house of the Lord. They'd the church building like that. They'd even describe part of the church building as the sanctuary. Uh, and the whole kind of dynamic was that we were coming to be with God, coming to dwell with Him. But the big story of the Bible is not that sinful and rebellious people kind of go through all the efforts like you guys have had to to get here today. Like we go to all the effort to go and be with God. No, no, no. God is always making the effort to come and be with us, to come and dwell with us. So that's what we saw in the Garden of Eden. God coming down to dwell with his people. It's what we saw at Mount Sinai, God coming down to dwell with His people and in this tabernacle and in the temple. And ultimately, of course, we see God coming down in His abundant grace and mercy to dwell with us in Christ His Son. Who We see in John 1 verse 14, we read about Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the pinnacle of God's desire to dwell with us. In Christ, the God of Exodus, in all His glory, actually tabernacles, right? That's the word dwell. God pitches His tent among us because He desires to dwell with us and for us to be able to dwell with Him. So God desires to dwell with us, and so he designs his dwelling place and all its furnishings. That's part two. And really, we're going to take a whirlwind tour of the rest of this section. You might want to have your Bible open. I'm going to be kind of skimming through lots of details, but hopefully you can follow along. I want to show you six reminders in this section that show God's people, show us, about who he is and what's made it possible for him to dwell Amongst us. So first, t- take a look at the section about the Ark of the Covenant, chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. Uh, God here is starting in the very centre of his tabernacle, the inner sanctum, if you like. Sometimes it's called the most holy place. And with these directions about the Ark of the Covenant, God is reminding his people that he can only dwell amongst them if their sins have been dealt with, they've been atoned for. Uh, So you look in verse 10, uh, you'll see that despite how significant the Ark of the Covenant is in the life of God's people, uh, it's very, very small. About 111 centimetres long, 67 centimetres wide and high. It's really not that big. Uh, Like lots of things in the tabernacle, it's made of acacia wood. I mentioned that before. That's the kind of wood that they could access. Uh, Verse 11, you'll see, and you heard, as Ben read over and over again, uh, there's this need for things to be built with gold. In in this case, the Ark of the Covenant, not just with gold, but with pure gold. Uh, Because this Ark is supposed to symbolize God's throne amongst his people. And this is where God is going to sit, the God who is pure and holy. And the directions about the carrying poles in verses 11 to 14, we see that throughout this section as well. Uh, in this case with the ark, it's to say, well, God wants to dwell with his people everywhere. Well, There's no point building a fixed throne for him. Well, you've got to be able to, he's got to be able to be on the move with you. And likewise, verse 15, uh, the, the, the poles have to be left in. You should never take them out because God's throne must never be damaged. It, it ought to be kept pure and holy and glorious. So you've got to leave the poles in to protect it, it doesn't, so it doesn't get bashed around. In verse 16, where we see that as well as being God's throne, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be a container. What's it carrying? You take a look there in verse 16. It's carrying the two stone tablets that God is going to give Moses up on Mount Sinai, the terms of God's covenant with his people. But God knows that his people aren't going to do a great job of keeping the terms of that covenant. They're going to break it. Remember the Ten Commandments are about loving God rightly and loving your neighbor rightly. God knows that his people are going to fail dismally, ...on on those two counts. Uh, So in verse 17, he provides a way to deal with his people's sin. uh, To bring atonement for sin. Uh, The Israelites, uh, uh, the NIV translation says, atonement cover. I think the translation Ben read from said, mercy seat... Uh, It's a bit of a contested, like how to translate it. You might gather from those two different translations. But then to make this cover uh, for the container, uh, and that that it's not just supposed to be a lid to keep the stone tablets in, although that's, you know, very practical and and functional, uh, but it has this real uh, theological significance for Israel's relationship with God. Uh, You can write down Leviticus 16, verses 13 and 14. Uh, You can read that later on. I'll read a, a little bit of it now. Leviticus 16, 13 and 14, Aaron, the high priest of God's people, we're told, uh, is to take some of uh, the bull's blood and with his finger, uh, finger, he's to sprinkle it on the front of this atonement cover. And then he shall sprinkle some of it uh, with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. This atonement cover is to offer a constant reminder to the Israelites... That their sins have been covered. That's the idea of the, this, this Hebrew word behind it is to do with covering. Their sins have been completely covered, right? That they've been atoned for uh, because the blood of, a, uh, of the atonement, uh, the atoning blood has been sprinkled on this cover. And I think that that kind of idea is reinforced by the fact, in verses 18 to 20, uh, we've got these two cherubim that that are kind of built into either end of the atonement cover. This reminds us that that the Ark of the Covenant, uh, again, is God's throne. You might have heard in the Psalms, Psalm 80 verse 1, for example, uh, says, the Lord sits enthroned where? Between the cherubim. that's, That's what this is about. This is God's throne. The idea of these cherubim should lead us to look up to God's heavenly throne room, the place where God dwells. Always, He sits on His throne between His angelic hosts. But it should also lead us to look back to God's dwelling place in Eden. maybe you remember in Genesis 3, verse 24, you can look this up later on as well, uh, God drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden after their sin, and then at the edge of the garden, he places two cherubim with flaming swords to guard the way back to the Tree of Life. The point of these cherubim is to tell us that if sinful and rebellious people like us want to re-enter God's presence and know Him and be known by Him, then someone or something must bear the sword of God's judgment. Someone must pay the price of death. And that's what happens here in the most holy place over the Ark of the Covenant The blood of the atoning sacrifice is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, in between these cherubim, as it were, uh, saying that this sacrifice has borne the sword of God's judgment for my sins, for uh, for God's people's sins. Uh, So their sins have been covered. They've been atoned for. Uh, So God, verse 22, uh, having atoned for their sins, is able to meet with and speak with his people. But well, he can't do that if their sins haven't been dealt with, but he can, once they have been. Now, I've spent lots of time in the Ark of the Covenant. Don't panic. Other bits will be, uh, be quicker. But the Ark of the Covenant is very significant, reminding God's people that he can only dwell among them if their sins have been atoned for. And then we've got the table uh, in chapter 25, verses 23 to 30. What's that about? We've moved from the, the most holy place through a curtain, which we'll talk about in a bit, into the holy place. And this is reminding God's people that once your sins have been atoned for, God welcomes you to eat at his table in his dwelling place. Well, that's the reminder. So if you look at verses 23 and 24, you'll see that the table's also to be made of acacia wood. It's to be overlaid with pure gold because it's right near the pure and holy God. Uh, we don't know what the rim around the table's about. Probably it's there to stop stuff falling off the table. Because once again, the table has to be portable. Uh, sometimes they're going to be carrying it with things on it, and so maybe a rim around it is useful uh, to stop things falling off. Uh, but the most significant thing is in verse 30. Where, you, where we see that there's this bread that's got to be on the table, the bread of the presence. Uh, there's stuff about this in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9, a bit more detail uh, in that chapter as a whole. Uh, but the basic idea is that God commanded there to be 12 loaves of bread sitting on this table in his presence all the time. And every seven days, probably on the Sabbath, Aaron and his sons would enter into the holy place and they would eat together the 12 loaves of the kind of bread that had been there for a week. They'd eat the old bread and then they'd replace it with the new bread. What was this about? It was about providing God's people with a constant reminder that once their sins have been atoned for by the blood being shed on the Ark of the Covenant, then they are welcome to draw near to God, uh, to eat at a table in his dwelling place, where God would provide for their needs and satisfy their needs. So that's the table. And then there's the lampstand, right at the end of chapter 25. Uh, and through this lampstand, God's reminding his people uh, that it's his Presence dwelling among them, his kind of abiding presence that brings life and growth and blessing. Right, the lampstand symbolises God's presence. So I'm not going to build a big case for why that's the case, but hopefully you'll see as I unpack this. you in verse 31, so if you've got your Bible, I know we're moving quick, right? Chapter 25, verse 31. You'll see that the lampstand not good enough to be overlaid with pure gold. The whole thing has to be made out of pure gold. Why? Well, because the God it symbolises is completely and utterly pure. So this lampstand needs an extra dimension of purity. And Then in verses 31 to 36, you'll see that this lampstand is a bit strange in that it's covered with buds and flowers and blossoms. It's supposed to look like some sort of tree, it seems. A tree, in verse 37, uh, that has seven different branches with seven lamps, one at the end of each branch. Uh, you might remember in the Bible, the number seven, uh, it's a number that's all about fullness and perfection. Uh, so I think this is saying that this lampstand is supposed to re- represent the fullness of God's presence. And then in verses 38 to 40, you've got that, those really practical things about wick trimmers and providing oil The point being that Aaron and his sons are supposed to keep this light of God's presence burning all the time because God wants his people to know that he's with them all the time. So what's this about? You might remember that in the Garden of Eden, God's original dwelling place with his people, there was a tree of life in his dwelling place, wasn't there? a symbol that life and growth and blessing comes from the presence of God. And the ultimate dwelling place of God with his people in Revelation 22, there's going to be a tree of life. As we see, life and growth and blessing in the new heavens and new earth. So also in this dwelling place, God's tabernacle, this lampstand is supposed to look like a kind of stylized tree of life with all its flowers and buds and blossoms. But right, reminding God's people that it's His presence dwelling among them continually, that it's the, the source of all life and growth and blessing. And then we're going to whip through all of chapter 26 with just a few things. a whole bunch of stuff about curtains and coverings. It's very, very exciting. I encourage you to read it all later on. Uh, but uh, this is God reminding His people. Right? That the, the barriers between he and them can only be removed through substitutionary sacrifices. Right, An, an animal dying in their place. And so if you, if you skim over verses 1 to 14, you'll see four different coverings of the sanctuary tent. Right? This is the inner tent. Uh, so you've got a kind of big courtyard, then you've got, maybe I should have had a diagram, but you've got a tent in here, uh, which has the, the most holy place and the holy place. Uh, and here we're talking about the coverings of this inner tent. Uh, the first covering, we're told, is a fine linen, uh, to be a fine linen covering. It's got to have cherubim embroidered on it again. Once again, it's about the Garden of Eden, it's about God's heavenly dwelling place. Uh, then in verses 7 to 13, there's a goat's hair covering. Well, what's that all about? I think it's about the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Aaron the high priest is to enter into that most holy place to sprinkle blood on the atonement cover, and it's got to be the blood of a goat that is sprinkled on there, a goat that has been killed. So once again, this is a giant picture book, reminding God's people... It's the blood of an animal, a sacrifice, that is the key to me dwelling with you. It's the same with the ram's covering. If you look there in verse 14, there's got to be a ram's covering. And the Israelites, in hearing this, would have thought about the story of Abraham and his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 32. You remember, God provided a ram to die in the place of Abraham's son Isaac. It's about a substitute Someone dying in the place of someone else. And then in the second half of verse 14, uh, there's, uh, it's called durable leather coverings. If you've got your Bible open, it might have a footnote uh, that says maybe this is a large sea mammal. Uh, the skins of a large sea mammal, it's a, like a, a bit quirky. Uh, some people think it's a, you know, maybe a dugong or something. I'm not sure exactly, and, and people don't really know. Uh, but it would be very practical, wouldn't it? Uh, if it was a sea mammal, because that would mean that the whole sanctuary was waterproof. Right? Because as far as I'm, I'm aware, sea mammals don't mind getting wet. Uh, and so that, that would work well, practically. Uh, it would also have the, the, the effect uh, of saying that the, the uh, kind of sanctuary tent from the outside had really no beauty or glory at all. It was really not very impressive. All the, all the beauty and glory was on the inside. And I wonder if that's a a little bit of a hint, because this tabernacle here is supposed to point us to Jesus. a Jesus, who in Isaiah 53 is described as having no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And that's what we see with this tabernacle. There's lots of beauty in it, but it's all on the inside, not visible from the outside. And then in verses 15 to 30, they've got to build a wall around this inner sanctuary tent. Uh, there's not much of particular interest here. There's frames made of acacia wood. Uh, verses 19 to 25, the, the frames are slotted into little silver bases. Uh, and then they're uh, kind of strengthened with crossbars. And, and all of the frames are overlaid with gold. And once again, really, the key thing here is that you can't see any of that silver or gold from the outside. It's pretty boring, the wall of the sanctuary tent from the outside. On the inside, it's glorious. And then we've got uh, the curtains that divide up, three curtains that divide up the different parts of God's dwelling place. Uh, There's the curtain uh, in verses 31 to 35, a kind of beautiful, fine linen curtain uh, that divides the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is from the holy place, where the table is and the lampstand. And then in verses 36 and 37, there's another curtain to divide the holy place from the courtyard, uh, which we'll get to in a sec. And then in chapter 27, there's another curtain dividing the courtyard from the uh, the Israelites' camp. You've got all these curtains communicating to God's people that your sin uh, creates a barrier between me and you between a holy God and a sinful people. There's all these barriers, and the only way for them to be overcome is the blood of a sacrifice. That's the only thing that opens up the curtain, that gives access to a new layer, a new depth of God's presence. That was pretty quick through a whole chapter. And then at the start of chapter 27, we've got the altar out in the courtyard, verses 1 to 8. And this is God reminding His people uh, that if they even want to approach His presence in the courtyard, their sins must be completely atoned for, uh, and they have to come in a spirit of full devotion to Him. Uh, The altar's got to be portable, right? God's people aren't going to stop having a need to offer sacrifices when they move on. They're always going to be sinful, so the sacrifices have to be able to be made, Uh, One difference about the altar, you'll see that it's covered in bronze, not with gold. Uh, That's partly because we're a little bit further away from the throne room of God. We're out in the courtyard. It makes sense to use a less precious metal. It's also because bronze is a bit better for burning things on, it's a bit more heat resistant. Uh, And this altar is going to have a whole bunch of sacrifices burnt on it, particularly those whole burnt offerings that we talked about last week, Leviticus chapter 1, where the whole sacrifice is consumed by the flames uh, as a sign of complete atonement for sin uh, and the person's complete devotion to God. Uh, And that's really the point of this altar. The one who can approach God is the one whose sins have been completely atoned for and who is completely devoted to the Lord. Uh, let me follow up my notes. Uh, finally, we've got the directions for constructing the big perimeter wall, the, the courtyard of the tabernacle. This is in verses 9 to 19. Are uh, the courtyards pretty big? Uh, I'll leave you to do the calculator. I just looked at the footnotes. So I'm not sure how excited you get about the cubits. Uh, but it's 45 metres long and 22.5 and metres wide. It's a pretty big rectangle. Uh, the rectangle has essentially two halves in it, two squares. One is the courtyard and the other is where the sanctuary tent is. Right in the middle of the sanctuary tent is the Ark of the Covenant and in the middle of the courtyard is the altar we were just talking about. And then you've got the fact that uh, you'll see if you look at the dimensions that the wall around the courtyard is supposed to be 2.3 metres high, which is pretty tall. I don't imagine many Israelites being able to get a peek over the top. That's the point. The point is uh, that apart from the blood of the sacrifices that are offered on the altar that's at the centre of the courtyard and the ark that's at the centre of God's sanctuary, uh, apart from those sacrifices, God's presence is dangerous for His people. They need to be protected from it by this wall, right? God might indeed have a dwelling place among them, but He's not a domesticated God. He's not a safe God or a tame God. He's a God that they must pro- approach with awe and reverence, and great respect for His holiness. So there it is, right? That's kind of whirlwind tour of three chapters or something. Uh, of God's design plans for his dwelling place and all its furnishings. Uh, and you, if you read through the, the, the chapters, which I encourage you to do, uh, you'll see that there's a whole lot more times where God says to Moses, you must build this exactly as I show you. That, that'll continue next week. That, that is a really big deal in this section. It's a big deal for God uh, because God wants this tabernacle to teach his people about great heavenly truths, right? Great realities uh, that will ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, which is why in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the writer to the Hebrews picks this up and he says, The high priests serve at a sanctuary that is just a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This is why God's design plan is a really big deal. Because every part of this tabernacle is supposed to point us to the person and work of Jesus. To show us the glory of who Jesus is. Jesus, our great high priest, who entered into the ultimate tabernacle... Or not this earthly tabernacle, but into the glorious, the, the heavenly throne room of God uh, to offer up the ultimate sacrifice in our place. Which is what the writer of Hebrews picks up in the next chapter, in verses 11 and 12. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, But when Christ came as high priest over the good things that are now already here, he went uh, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. uh, The tabernacle that is not made with human hands, not like the one that Moses built, uh, that is not uh, to say, it is not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats or of calves, but he entered the most holy place, once for all, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. God has this firm, insatiable desire to dwell with his people. He wants to be near us, to be close to us, to have intimacy with us. Despite all our mess and our sin and our failings. And yet he knows that that's only going to work. It's only going to be possible for us to live together if a massive price is paid. Uh, If his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes as our ultimate priest to offer the ultimate sacrifice in the ultimate tabernacle. Offering up his blood in the glorious throne room of God. So that by faith in Christ's blood shed on the cross we can once and for all be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of our sins. And so that God can actually get what He's always wanted, which is to be with us, to dwell with us, to dwell not just near us, but in us. Why right? should you pick this up in his prayer at the start of the service? Or The God, having cleansed us by the power of His Spirit, does something pretty incredible. He says, I want to use you as one who's put your faith in Christ as my tabernacle. I want to come and dwell in you in all my glory by the power of my Spirit and take up residence in your heart. And That's how much God wants to be near you. God desires to dwell amongst us as His people. Uh, And so he designs his dwelling place and all his furnishings, all its furnishings, uh, to remind us of who he is. He's the God who is majestic in holiness. Uh, And to remind us that it's only possible for him to dwell not just near us, but in us, uh, because of the work of Christ, his Son. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, It has been a a bit of a whirlwind today. I pray that... uh, the details uh, that are helpful uh, would uh, take root in our hearts. Uh, in particular, Father, uh, lift our eyes to see our Lord Jesus, our great high priest who offered the ultimate sacrifice in the ultimate tabernacle, uh, that, we might, uh, not just, uh, that you might not just be near us, but in us, by the power of your Spirit. Uh, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.